Good morning, Grace Lamarada. I'm Kenny. If you don't recognize me, that's because most Sundays I'm over in downtown Fullerton uh, with our uh, sister congregation, Grace Fullerton. Uh, they are hunkering down in the Gospel of Mark right now as we speak as well. Uh, if you turn there, Mark chapter 3, we'll get there in a minute, but I wanted to just stop before we move on and just remind you that what you just did for the last half hour is so good for you and for me. Uh, listening to a sermon podcast and a worship album in your car at home is not a substitute for this right here, mainly because you're not all here, right? If I could pack you all into my house or my car, it might be different, but there's something unique about what happens, what we just did. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly singing or teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teaching and admonishing one another, singing. That's what what we just did. Do you feel the freedom to look around the room while we're singing? Maybe for some of you that feels really weird. You feel like you're supposed to either look at the screen or keep your eyes closed. Those are the two options, right? But you're not supposed to look at each other, you know, making someone feel self-conscious. But um, I love looking around the room. I need to look around the room singing. So this morning we're singing uh, My Sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And I watch smiles break out on people's faces in the room. And it's admonishing to me. It's reminding me how good this news is, right? And that it applies to all of us. Or Mel, you know, the blog that Walt that you read and, and then a second service looking at Mel sitting back there and she's singing, we don't have to fear, God is on the throne, his power will prevail. We need this. We admonish one another singing. So, so that's what we've been doing. I, I hope you are thankful for it. Uh, I hope your, your soul is filled this morning. And singing, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. Is it well with your soul this morning? Good. Mark chapter 3, we're going to begin in this morning. And as we do, I wanted to think for a second about the Apostle Paul calls the gospel a mystery. He says it a lot. He says it in Ephesians, he says it in Colossians and in Romans. He says the gospel, the good news, is a, was a mystery. It's not anymore, but it was a mystery that was hidden for generations. God had not played all of his cards and put them on the table until Jesus came. And when Jesus finally comes, the mystery is revealed. So with that in mind, think about the gospel of Mark or the gospel of Matthew, um, the account of the life and the ministry and the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the revealing of the mystery. Think of uh, unwrapping a present. If you're not a barbarian like some and just tear into it like that instantly, instant gratification, but you're civilized and on Christmas or your birthday, you, you, you go slowly and you take your time. You want to make this last, right? And you, you open one end and you look at the box that it's in and you get a clue maybe about what it is. Maybe you see that little silver apple on it. And you know, ah, this is good, right? Or, or for my son, you see the Lego logo on the side. And, but he still doesn't know what it is yet. And so, and so you begin to peel the paper back and you, you see what's in the box. And the gospel of Mark is sort of like that. Jesus is slowly unwrapping the gift 
that God has sent in Jesus. And, and the glory of the gospel is being revealed um, in stages, right? So, so far in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has unwrapped the gift enough to see that Jesus speaks with the very authority of God. People say no one has spoken like him. He speaks as if he has authority. He didn't, he's not borrowing it from someone else. He talks like God. He even has the audacity to claim he can forgive sin, that that's his right and his ability. And it's been revealed that Jesus has power. Unclean spirits are terrified when he shows up and they say, we know who you are, son of the most high God. And then when he speaks, they obey. He heals sickness with a word or a touch and crowds are pressing in on him. And so we realize that Jesus has power over what ails us and what uh, is hard uh, living on this earth in a fallen world, that Jesus has power uh, over the brokenness of our world. And we've seen him going around from town to town proclaiming again and again one message, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm bringing it, he's saying. So repent and believe in the good news that I'm telling you. And in this scene, Mark 3, 31 through 35, he's sitting in a, in a house packed house, people crowded around him, sitting at his feet, he's teaching. Um, and, and he pulls a little bit more of the wrapping paper back to see something we haven't yet seen in the gospel about uh, this gospel about the good news. So if you're taking notes, here's my outline. Three surprising things that Jesus says here and then two implications of that. Three three surprising things, three things that he, he sort of peels the paper back and, and reveals to us here that I want us to see and then two implications. So let me read and I want to pick up verses 20 and 21 that we skipped over last week because that's probably the setting of our verses here. So back in Mark 3, Jesus has come down from the mountain. He's uh, set apart 12 disciples who were going to be the apostles and he's going to build his church uh, through them. And he comes back down the mountain and the crowds are waiting for him. And verse 20 says, he went home and the crowd gathered again so that he couldn't even eat. They won't even let him eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Verse 31. So here's Jesus. He's teaching. He's going without. He's skipping meals to teach. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This was surprising for him to ask, who are my family? Seems like an obvious question right then. But apparently not. Jesus is saying something new here. Number one, surprise number one, is this, is that God's kingdom that is now at hand is a family. His kingdom is a family. 
He frames God's kingdom in, in terms of love and loyalty and kinship and family bond. And so, in other words, uh, he hasn't just come to call subjects into a kingdom, but to adopt people into his family. It's not just about citizenship, it's about sonship. The kingdom of God is about becoming sons of God and having brotherly fellowship with Jesus such that Jesus can look at you and say, I call you my brother and my sister. The one who speaks with authority like no one else and who has the power to heal and forgive sin and cast out demons is gonna call us family. That's what this kingdom is about, making a family. The God that our catechism question uh, made, you know, exalted in our minds this week that he is infinite, eternal, unchanging in power and perfection and glory and goodness and wisdom and justice and truth and nothing happens apart from him, right? This God, his kingdom is to bring you into his family to have a relationship with you and actually let you share this great thing he's had going on throughout eternity, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly happy, loving each other, glorifying each other, enjoying family in himself as God, didn't need to create anyone else, but benevolently does so that people can get a taste of that, can share in this family love that God has known forever. And not only can we share it with him, Jesus says, you can be my brothers and sister. But then by extension, he's creating a new family, a blended family, the ultimate blended family. Very different in many respects, but who share this common bond, union with Jesus, and thereby can actually experience this this God love horizontally with each other. The kingdom of God is about making a family. So that's surprise number one. God's kingdom is a family, not just subjects. This is an adoption program. This is about Jesus bringing many sons and daughters to glory, to joining himself with us and bringing us to God forever as family. Wow. So the question is who's in this family? What makes you part of this family? And what doesn't make you part of this family? That's what Jesus takes this little moment to make a point about. Two points, really. One point is a word of caution. The other point is an encouraging word of assurance. It's a caution to anyone who might wrongly assume, I'm just in God's family, of course. I'm family of God, child of God. If that's based on something that does not make you family with God, this is a warning. But it's also an assurance. It's an encouraging word to say, um, you know what makes you part of the family of God? This. And if this applies to you, you are my family. You are my brothers and sisters, Jesus says. So those are the other two surprising things. Number two, what doesn't make someone a member of Jesus' true family? What doesn't make you a member of his true family, is acquaintance with him or close association with him, even being physically related to him, doesn't automatically make you part of his family. That's the shocking thing right here when he says, who are my mother and brothers? Wait, what? Let's back up. Verse 31. 
Here's the scene. He's, you know, surrounded by people. He's teaching. It's packed in. People can't even get in from the outside. In verse 31, his mom and his brothers come and they're standing outside calling to him. They're literally outside, but more significantly, the reason that they're standing outside isn't incidental. It's because they are at this point, Jesus is implying, standing outside of his true family. They're standing outside those who are believing him, trusting him. Verse 21 says they think he's out of his mind. I mean, Mary, we, it's weird to me, you know, Mary knows some important things about Jesus, right? In our Advent series, right? The angel appeared and told, but still somehow right now, she, she and the brothers are seeing these crowds and some people are not happy with Jesus and not sure what they're up to. And Jesus is going without meals and they're, they're concerned. And maybe Jesus is just, just kind of getting a little nuts here. He's to rein it in. It says they've actually come to seize him. They're trying to pull him out of here and say, Jesus, come home. Stop. In John 7, we're told that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. They actually mock him at one point. They say, you know, you, you, you keep staying around here in the countryside of Galilee. Uh, they say, no one works in secret if they seek to be known openly. If you do these things, go show yourself to the world. And John wants us to be clear. They're taunting him a little. They're mocking him because it says, um, they said this because not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't believe in him yet. So here's his mom and his brothers and they've shown up and they're trying to get him to leave. They're not on board. They're opposing his ministry. His family are in opposition to his ministry. That might sound harsh or overstated. I mean, the Pharisees are plotting with Herod's people to kill Jesus, it said in Mark 3, 6. That's opposition to Jesus, right? Trying to kill Jesus. But Jesus wants us to see that Right now, his family is opposing him. You know, opposition to Jesus doesn't just look like trying to put him on the cross. Sometimes it looks like trying to steer him away from the cross. Remember Peter? Later on in Mark, it'll be months till we get there, so you'll forget and, and then we'll, we'll get to it then. But, but I want to remind you, just after Jesus, Peter has said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, G Jesus begins saying, well, the, the son of God must be rejected and suffer many things. And, and he's actually, the chief priests and scribes are going to kill him. And after three days, he's going to rise again. And you remember what Peter does? He takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. That's a bad sentence right there. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, this crowd and he's teaching and Peter goes, gets him around the shoulder. He takes him aside and he rebukes him. Here's what he says. He says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Don't talk like that. No way. I mean, why is Peter saying this? He loves Jesus. He cares about him, right? What does Jesus call him? Satan. He says, Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of mind. He calls Peter Satan. I mean, if anyone's in opposition to, to God, it's Satan, right? And he says, Peter, right now, you are acting like Satan. And Peter's just trying to love Jesus. He's trying to, he, he's trying to get Jesus to avoid the cross, to avoid suffering. And Jesus says, that is not the will of God. That is opposing God's will. Get behind me. 
You can oppose God's will by being antagonistic to him and hating him, but we can also oppose God's will by trying to avoid parts of his will that we don't like. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And it's opposition to him to try to avoid that. So here's his family and they're outside and they're trying to get Jesus to stop. This is getting dangerous. This is getting out of hand. Come home with us. And Jesus' question, who are my mother and brothers then? Is really like saying, uh, when they say your mother and brothers are outside, it's like saying, are you sure? Are you sure about that? There's a caution for us in this. Being related to Jesus did not automatically make Mary part of his eternal family. Is that crazy? I mean, think about it. Jesus was in her womb for nine months, connected by an umbilical cord. Ew, right? Sorry, kids. If you don't know about that, you can, that's a conversation for later this afternoon. Um, <laughs> she nursed Jesus, raised Jesus, changed his diapers. And Jesus is saying, that does not necessarily make you related to me in an eternal way. Make you part of God's kingdom, which is a family. Being physically related to Jesus doesn't get you in. So if being related to Jesus doesn't get you in, then acquaintance with Jesus or familiarity with Jesus or association with God's people, the church, isn't going to get you in either. Jesus doesn't call you brother or sister because you grew up in a Christian house. Or that your grandparents and great-grandparents are really godly. Being a part of a really good church doesn't get you in, doesn't make you automatically part of uh, Jesus' family. Because you're married to a, a godly husband or a godly wife, you're not in by association. God's family doesn't have in-laws, right? Well, you know, she's in and I'm with her, right? I mean, Jesus is saying that's not how it works. We all will stand before Jesus as judge individually. And the question is, does he know you? In this way, in this family way, are you bought? Are you part of Jesus' family or not? And Jesus says something sobering. He says, many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. Not family. And I have no doubt that many people who are saying, Lord, Lord, are going to be basing that on some measure of acquaintance with Jesus or Jesus' word or the people of God, right? The church. I was a deacon. I taught Sunday school. We have people in our church who were teaching Sunday school and became Christians as they were teaching Sunday school. Not here, but at a previous church. I love the Julian and Teresa Valle's story. You know, years ago, they were here in town at another church teaching youth group as volunteers. And as they were teaching the curriculum they were given, realized we've never trusted God in this way. We've never put our faith in Jesus as our savior and, and, and submitted to him as Lord. And they did as the youth leaders. Doesn't automatically get you in. Ruth and Orton Horn were dear saints of this church for decades and their testimony was similar. They were in the church, I mean, serving as deacon and teaching and in and, 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 and leadership and, 
And through the preaching of the word, the lights went on and they realized that none of those things make me part of God's family. It's by grace alone, through faith in Jesus, the one God has sent and yielding to him. And they did so. None of those things, being acquainted with God and knowing lots about God and knowing God's people well and even being a part of the community of faith does not make you part of God's family necessarily. So that's surprise number two. Number three, who are members of Jesus' true family? If that's not how we become related to God in this way, to Jesus in this way, who are members of Jesus' true family? And he says it in six, six words. He just says it simply, whoever does the will of God. I don't like short, easy answers. It seems like a little too, you know, too, too simple, but he boils it down to the sentence. He says, it's whoever does the will of God. That's my family. So we need to understand what does it mean to do the will of God if that's what makes me part of Jesus' family because these Pharisees, for example, talk about people who were working really hard to do the will of God, right? They were, they were being so careful. Talk about writing on their envelopes, I love to give. I mean, they were tithing, Jesus says. He makes a joke of it all the way down to their spice cabinet. They're pulling even other spices and measuring out 10% just to make sure God knows they're keeping the rules, right? And they're keeping Sabbath and they're setting up these extra rules and traditions to just make sure we don't accidentally break Sabbath. I mean, they are working really hard to do the will of God, Meanwhile, they're conspiring to kill him. <laughs> Obviously, that's not what Jesus means by whoever does God's will. On the flip side, he says here in verses uh, you know, 33 and 34, he looks about at those who are sitting around him and says that right now, here are my mother and my brothers. These are not perfect people. These are humble, poor, needy, sinful People flocking to Jesus, crowding in, listening. These are not perfect people. They are probably, in, in, in many respects, not keeping God's commands to, like the, the Pharisees. And yet he says to them, here are my brother and my brothers to these sitting in here. So what does he mean? What is it about what these people are doing right here that Jesus can say, that's doing God's will? What are they doing? What are they doing? They're, they're listening. Yeah. What else? They're trusting. They're welcoming Jesus. They're yielding to him, right? He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm bringing it. Repent. Believe the good news. And where are they? They are packed in, sitting at his feet, looking up and listening, hanging on his words. Tell us about this kingdom of God, Jesus. We want to be part of this kingdom of God. He looks at them and they're yielding to God's will by yielding to the one whom God has sent. That is Jesus himself. They're welcoming him. I think whoever does the will of God means yielding your life and your will to God's will. Uh, ultimately, it's turning and saying, not my will, but your will, God. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? He says, pray like this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So welcoming God's kingdom sincerely, saying, God, I welcome your kingdom that's coming. I want your kingdom to come. Jesus says, what that means is you want his will to be done on earth 
including in yourself. So a desire from the heart that turns from my will and my way to God's will and God's way and says, your will be done and yields to Jesus, the one God has sent, is doing the will of God. I think that this yielding to the will of God is how we come to be in God's family. And I think it is also the ongoing mark of family resemblance of all of God's family. I think it's both. I think when, when, when a person truly goes from not being in God's family to God's family, repenting of sin, turning to, to God in faith uh, through Jesus Christ, it's ultimately doing the will of God, becoming a person who from, from, from your very soul says, I, I yield, I give, not my will, your will be done. I don't think Jesus in this scene is obviously he's not talk, teaching you know, a, a lecture on the atonement and on how God uh, deals with sin and, and, and what Jesus is gonna do to, to pay in full the consequence of our sin or to satisfy God's wrath. And, but he is talking about uh, what is the response to me, Jesus, that in return will receive forgiveness of sins and sonship. And it's this, it's yielding to to Jesus, whom God sent. Such that in, in John 6, when crowds ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus can sum it up by saying, this is the work of God. You believe in him whom he sent. What does it mean to be doing the will of God? Yield to Jesus. Submit yourself to Jesus. Believe in the one whom he sent. Turn to him. And that's what this crowd's doing. They're sitting at his feet and they are believing in the one whom he sent. So initially turning and saying, thy will be done. That's how we come to be in God's family. That's what it means to go from death to life and outside the family to inside is we finally yield. And we yield ourselves to Jesus who dies for us, pays for our sin, forgives us. But it's also the mark of family resemblance and it's what shows outwardly that Jesus is our brother, that we resemble him. If there was one overarching characteristic of Jesus' life and ministry that we see in the gospels, it's that he, he loved to do God's will, right? He just says it over and over. John 4, 34, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I don't just do God's will. He says, my food is to do his will. I want to do his will. I love to do the will of God. John 5, 30, he says, I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. John 6, 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus, throughout his life to the very end in his last breath, was sold out to do the will of God who sent him. And that becomes the mark of all of Jesus' family. John says in 1 John 3 that we know God's seed has come to abide in us when we love the brothers, when we begin to do the will of God in a way that resembles Jesus' life. It's a mark that we're now in his family. And I think that even when we fail to do God's will, even when we break his commands and we fail to live in godliness, this, this desire, there's still this internal deep desire to do God's will nevertheless that still is a mark of being in God's family. Do you know that feeling as a Christian? 
Even at times when I have knowingly, blatantly, willfully, premeditatedly sinned. I knew it. It wasn't, oops, boy, that was bad. I need, it was, I'm, I'm going to do it, and I do it. I do it because I want to do it. And even, even with that, that conviction of sin, even that immediate after feeling of, of guilt, and that was wrong, and there's a sense of that is not what I really want. That is not really my will. I want God's will. That's a mark of being in Jesus' family. Not being content with sin. So it's whoever does the will of God, Jesus says, that's my family. And it's whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God. So in other words, on one hand, your family can't get you into Jesus' family. On the other hand, your family can't keep you out of Jesus' family. Doesn't matter what family you grew up in. If if none of them are believers, ever, doesn't matter what family religion you've been raised with. Doesn't matter your ethnicity. Doesn't matter what country you live in. Doesn't matter what your track record, your personal history. It doesn't matter how long, how many years or decades you have resisted and rejected God's will over you. Whoever does the will of God can be in his family. Whoever yields, which you could do right now this morning and says, I give. I see it now. I give. Thy will be done, Jesus. Forgive my sin, God, because Jesus died for it. Come into my life, spirit, and help me now live for your will. Whoever does that, in God's family, that could be you. If you've never done that, I would love the privilege of of talking with you about that and praying with you about that. Many people here would also love to do that. So that's it. God's kingdom is a family Association with Jesus won't get you in, but yielding to Jesus whom God sent will. Two implications. Number one, family does not come first. Talk about a sacred cow, right? For Christians to say family doesn't come first. Jesus is doing some sacred cow tipping, right? He's saying, well, hold on a second. Thank you very much. Um, This is a sacred cow because loving your family is a, God, is, a, is a good and God-ordained thing, right? God loves the family. It was his idea. The family is a, is a, is a shadow of something even more lasting and real, the love that, that God has always known. He says, I, I want your families to, 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 to operate like that, to love one another like that. I mean, Jesus certainly both taught and modeled for us a high view of the family, didn't he? He got ticked at some Pharisees who were justifying neglect of their parents saying, sorry, my money's dedicated to God. Can't help you. He got ticked. He said, you are breaking God's law of love with your traditions. He would have high-fived Paul who wrote, if anyone doesn't provide for his relatives and especially the members of his household, he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. He would have said amen to that. Jesus' family ought to love their families better, right? Jesus even, he's hanging on the cross. He's suffocating. And one of the last things he does is he turns to John and he says, take care of my mother when I'm gone. 
even on the cross, he's still passing the mantle of care for his mother to the disciple John whom he loves. Jesus wants us to love our families really well. He wants husbands to lay their lives down for their wives as Christ loved the church. And he wants wives to love their husbands and follow and, and, and support uh, as, as the church does to Christ. And he wants children to, to obey and listen to and follow their parents. And parents, he wants us to love our children deeply and sacrificially. So when Jesus implies that family doesn't come first, there's something that trumps family. It doesn't mean that family is unimportant and don't worry about loving your family. But I think what it means is if you're really going to love your family well, you've got to keep the priorities straight. If God is not first, then you will not love your family best. We can't let Jesus' high view of the family take the sharp edges off when he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Like all good things, we can make family an idol, family relationships an idol, can't we? Like any good thing, it's a good thing to be a husband, to be a wife, to be a a son or a daughter, to be a, a parent, right? Those are good things, but we can take those roles and turn them into the ultimate thing. My joy or, or uh, self-worth rises and falls with how good of a husband I perceive myself to be or a good of a dad I'm being or not being, right? And it's this indicator that family and my role in it, my experience of it is becoming an ultimate thing. I listened to a, a Pastor Kevin DeYoung this week preaching on this passage and a couple things he said. One, he said, he says, I, I think maybe idolatry of the family could be uh, one of the most acceptable sins within the conservative Christian church because it looks so right, doesn't it? It's so honorable and it can look so good, good husband and good dad and a good mom and good kids and it looks like, it, it can look so right and yet it can be an idol, I'm more concerned that my kids love me than that they know I love God, that's a problem. The other line he said that that went right to the heart, he said, parents, you do your kids no favors if you love them in such a way that it leaves them thinking that they might be more important to you than God. Ouch. So much to think on here, but to ask God how to turn this into prayer this week might be saying, Lord, would you help me see if there's ways that, that my family to me is be, my love of my family, my, my, uh, my family is becoming an idol to me. Help me to see that, Lord. And help me to keep priorities where they need to be so that then I can love my family best. Second thing. Second implication, uh, and this is the last point, being part of Jesus' true family might mess up your earthly family relationships. Some of you are already shaking your head because you know, you've experienced that. Jesus, one time he says, I I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. And that sword is gonna cut right through the most, you know, uh, precious family bonds, husband and wife, children and parents, brother and sister, right? Jesus is gonna bring uh, a wedge in many cases. Being in Jesus' true family can jeopardize your relationships with your earthly family.
in an extreme example of that, there's a, there's a young guy named Mohammed who's been coming to Grace Fullerton this year. He's a grad student at Cal State Fullerton. That's him. Uh, studying engineering, born in Iran, moved here less than a year ago. And the couple he's standing with are Jeremy and Casey Lundgren. Jeremy uh, studied at Talbot uh, in the past and, and he would love to do more study uh, in the future. But right now they're sort of in a holding pattern. They have three young kids and, and, and they're sort of right now in holding. He'd love to, to do PhD work, but that hasn't happened for him right now. He could have every reason right now to just sort of be ticked off at God and what's, what's going on, God, and licking his wounds. But instead, he and his wife, he's working as a, uh, in construction and they leased a house over in Fullerton, very close to Cal State Fullerton campus that's much bigger than they need so they can host international students from Cal State Fullerton in their home. They have a heart for um, uh, students, particularly from the Middle East where they spent some time. And so Muhammad is one of four. The other three in there, I don't know their names, but they're from Pakistan, Iraq, and Kyrgyzstan. And then Muhammad is from Iran. But go back to the first if you picture, would you? So here's Muhammad. And in 2009, while he was still in Iran, the Lord began drawing him to himself. He got a hold of a Bible. Some Christians began sharing with him. Even when he moved here from Iran, he, he was not a believer yet, but he was so drawn to the contrast of the, um, the morality and the ethics of the gospel and Christianity as it was contrasted with his experience of the ethics of Islam that he was surrounded by. And he was drawn. So anyway, he moves here to become a student. He finds himself living in their house and he's just hungry, learning God's word. And he came up to me four or five weeks ago with Jeremy and said, um, I think I'd like to be baptized. Could, could, could we talk about that? Yes, we can, right? So we're going to be talking soon about getting baptized. Um, but... In the last two weeks, this has had major implications for his family, his parents back in Iran, who he put it, are straight Muslim, meaning very obedient, have not known up until just two weeks ago. He has a Facebook page that he had set total privacy to just a handful of friends here. Nevertheless, somehow... His dad got a call two weeks ago from someone in the government saying, why is your son posting Christian things about Jesus on his Facebook page? And his dad calls him up and I said, what did he say? He said, my mom and dad cursed me. (laughs) And then he said, I told them I relinquished my life to Jesus. This is the way of righteousness, he said. We were Facebook messaging yesterday some of this and, and, and he sent me, he's 1 Peter 3, 14 through 16. He's, this is what he's thinking about right now. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you and yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He said right now, that's, that's how he's praying for his parents and what he's looking to. He's drawn the line and now they know They've cursed him. That's about as serious as it gets, right? Maybe your mom and dad haven't cursed you for being a Christian, but maybe they think you're nuts. Maybe they're, maybe, you know, college student, Biola student. Maybe some of you here, you're at Biola and they don't know why you want to be at Biola. Why wouldn't you go to a state school? What are you there for? When are you going to just grow up and grow out of this and mellow out on the Jesus stuff? Or maybe your kids think you're out of your mind. You're doing all you can to train your kids and raise them to, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and they're just, give me the hand, they think you're nuts. 
I know families in both camps here at Grace, La Mirada. Maybe your faith in Jesus is the butt of jokes at family gatherings. Jesus knows what it's like. He can sympathize. He understood what it, the feeling of my, my mother and my brothers think I'm crazy right now. He can sympathize. He understands. And Jesus makes this huge promise in Mark 10. I want to finish with it. Turn forward to Mark 10, 29 and 30. Jesus says, I know that this could cost you big time when it comes to your earthly family. If you do the will of God, if you submit to me, I know, but it's worth it. Not just in heaven one day, I'll make it up to you, but listen to this promise. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake. In other words, lost property, lost a home maybe for the sake of my name and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. That's not off the table. And in the age to come, eternal life. The promise isn't just Jesus will make up for your losses in heaven, but he will make up for your losses now in this time. If following Jesus costs you your earthly family, he has made you part of a family that ought to stand in and will stand in the gap and will be for you family. And if following Jesus means that you lose your, your house, right? your financial support of your parents. Jesus has made this promise saying, I'm gonna give you a family and they'll step in and they'll help take care of your needs. That's the goal. Jesus is writing a check here that we are to cash, church. We make good on this. Jeremy and Casey are making good on this right now to Mohammed. A few weeks ago, Jeremy and Mohammed and I were at lunch and, and Jeremy, or Mohammed got a little bit teared up and he just was shaking his head. He says, Jeremy, I'm an outsider. Meaning I'm from Iran. He says, I'm an outsider and Jeremy calls me brother. <laughs> he just couldn't believe this. And who knows, this might cost him more than family. It might cost him financially. He probably can at this point go back to Iran and, and, and work there, the company he was working for, he had to sign a statement of faith saying, I affirm Islam. And now he's saying, I can't do that. But Jesus says, I will make up for that cost. Hundredfold, he said. So I want to finish just with this. How do we turn these things into prayer? That's a helpful way for me to think about as I head to my grace group. How do I take what we're, we're thinking about and, and, and put teeth to it and, and begin to apply it? And a good question to ask yourself is how do I turn these things, these truths into prayer? What do I need to pray in light of this? Let me just give a few suggestions and then I'll pray. Maybe for some of you who have been raised in the church, who've enjoyed a great blessing and been surrounded by the family of God all your life, it would be worth praying and, ask, and saying, Lord, Does doing the will of God describe me? Have I yielded myself like this to you, Jesus? And to do so? Or maybe for you who feel the gap Jesus has has made between you and your family, it means spending some time, Mark 29 and 30, and praying and saying, Lord, would you make good on this? Would you make up for this loss? This is hard, Lord. 
and that you'd find hope in that Jesus calls you brother and sister. For those of you with wonderful families, maybe John's closing words from his letter, little children, keep yourself from idols, would be worth praying. Say, Lord, are there ways that my family, my role in it, is, is becoming an idol? Asking him to reveal that, repenting of it, putting it back in its proper place. Or maybe lastly, for those of you who have yielded your life to Jesus, you agree that your only hope in life and in death is that you belong to God, that you're not your own. It's to keep yielding. To say, Lord, help me this week to say in all things, whatever I do in word or in deed, not my will be done, your will be done. Let me pray. God, thank you for uh, adoption. Thank you for bringing us into your family. Thank you for calling us uh, sons. Jesus, thank you for calling, uh, letting us call you a brother. What an awesome thing. Jesus, thank you for, for all that you did to make that possible, for living a sinless life, dying in our place, rising from the dead. We thank you for all that. God, I pray that, that for our church that you would help us to be a, a community, a gospel-formed uh, community that, that is the family of God to one another in deed and in truth, not just in word. God, I pray for those who are um, feeling even this morning the, the, the loss that, that following Jesus has, has cost them. God, I pray you would comfort and you'd, you'd fill in those gaps and, and, you, and, you'd, and you'd provide in the ways that the loss of family has created. God, I pray for, for our hearts that we would keep you first and foremost and that doing so then we would be able to love our families best. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.